Welcome to The Intern at Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today, we bring you another episode from our Ask a Fellow series on hypersensitivity pneumonitis. I'm Zara Morali, a PGY4 General Internal Medicine Fellow, here with Dr. Jennifer DeCruz, a PGY2 Internal Medicine Resident and Co-Site Lead for the Internet Work Podcast Series at Western University. And it's my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Dan Gillette. Dr. Gillette, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a PGY5 at uh, Western University, um, currently in my last few weeks of respirology training. I did my internal medicine also at uh, Western University and uh, completed med school at the Windsor campus of uh, Western. Perfect. Really happy to have you today with us, Dr. Gillette. So let's start off with a case. Mr. Santos is a 40-year-old retired male who has worked in a former fractory, immigrated to Canada from Angola approximately 15 years ago. He presents to the emergency department with complaints of weakness, easy fatigability with moderate exertion, worsening exertional dyspnea, and a non-productive cough, which has been steadily worsening for the past six months. He has no family history of lung disease, remote history of smoking, and only takes medication for hypertension. On exam, he is afebrile, tachypneic, has a heart rate of 80, blood pressure of 135 over 75, and an SpO2 of 90% on room air. He has bilateral crackles at base, but otherwise unremarkable physical exam, including no clubbing or signs of peripheral volume overload. He is keen to receive treatment so that he can return home to take care of his pigeons on his farmland. Okay, so interesting case. When I think about that case, uh, a couple of red flags are already going off in my head. Uh, Jen mentioned that the patient is from uh, working for at a factory. He immigrated to Canada. He's remote history of smoking, and then the uh, drop at the end about pigeons. So all of those things are making me um, think about several different respiratory diagnoses. So to put it all together, I guess how how should we be approaching a patient presenting um, with something like hypersensitivity pneumonitis? Of course, before we know that they have this, um, and when could when would you consider this on the differential? Yeah, so for, for every patient who walks through the emergency department with uh, dyspnea and cough, um, I think it's good to start off with a very broad differential to start with. Um, so from a cardiac perspective, considering things like heart failure, arrhythmias, valvular heart disease, from a GI perspective, thinking about GERD or silent aspirations, um, from a hematologic perspective, thinking about anemia, uh, psychogenic causes like panic disorder and anxiety. And then you get to your um, respiratory causes. And I think it's good to think about both things that are common as well as things that are life-threatening. Um, so things that need to be uh, ruled out. So things like pneumonia, pleural fusions, pulmonary embolism, COPD or asthma exacerbation and pneumothoraces. The single most important aspect that will lead you to consider hypersensitivity pneumonitis is taking a detailed history. Um, and I think this can't be overstated enough. So ruling out the more common causes of exertional, exertional dyspnea will help you to narrow your differential, especially if they have exposures, um, like some of the ones we heard about here in our case. The other clue is if you notice a radiologic pattern of interstitial lung disease, then as part of your differential, you would absolutely need to consider hypersensitivity pneumonitis. 
Perfect. So, so what exactly would you say is hypersensitive pneumonitis and what are those specific items you would say that are really important to clarify from your history? Of course, besides ruling out other common symptoms such as of heart failure, pneumonia, pleural effusions, things that you kind of already mentioned before. Sure. So HP is an immunologic disease that manifests as uh, interstitial lung disease in susceptible individuals after exposure to an inhaled inciting antigen. Uh, there are over 300 known antigens that are responsible for HP that have been reported. Uh, so these can broadly be classified as organic antigens. So things like fungi, yeast, and bacteria, uh, proteins or enzymes, such as animal fur dust, uh, avian feather or plant proteins, as well as inorganic antigens, things like chemicals, pharmaceutical agents and metals. So asking about occupational exposures and hobbies are the most important things to identify um, potential exposures. So some of the things that we typically ask about would be um, any uh, farming, uh, farming of vegetables, dairy cattle workers, exposure to ventilation systems and water reservoirs, bird and poultry handlers, animal handlers, really of any kind, grain and flour processing, lumber milling, construction, bark stripping, plastics, paint, electronic industry, um, textile workers, and then medications are always important to ask about as well. And uh, some of the most common ones we like to ask about are azathioprine, colchicine, uh, methotrexate, and uh, amiodarone. Uh, specifically, um, some of the ways that I would phrase these questions, I would ask about if there's any water damage in the home from humidifiers um, or from uh, previous flooding, if there's um, different kinds of heating systems or air conditioners. Um, I would ask if they have a hot tub at home and specifically, is it an indoor hot tub or an outdoor hot tub? I'd ask about birds uh, as pets or if they're around bird droppings um, and uh, if they have any feather pillows or any feather duvets. Um, there are detailed questionnaires, such as the uh, UCSF ILD questionnaire, um, which can be helpful in assessing for potential antigen exposures. Um, and the patient can complete them at home while taking their time. So it's uh, a little bit of a, a nicer, nicer way for them to think about these things rather than putting them on the spot in clinic um, where different exposures might slip their mind. In terms of the onset of symptoms, um, it can vary from being acute, um, so days to weeks, to subacute over months to years, um, which is what makes the diagnosis of HP particularly challenging. Uh, besides the usual symptoms of exertional dyspnea and dry cough, they may also have a wheeze, chest tightness, and constitutional symptoms. So as we all know, a lot of internal medicine is all about the history, but it really sounds like for HP, that the history is a very important part. Um, I'm a bit overwhelmed at all of these questions. Do you, is your practice usually in clinic, you guys are using questionnaires or do you have like a, a sheet that you can fill out or is this all from the top of your head? Yeah, so I, I think some of those questions that I went through, um, just going over the most common ones are, are ones we definitely ask about anyone who are mm -hmm. seeing for an interstitial lung disease, whether that's in clinic or in the hospital. Um, but with there being so many antigens, um, like the over 300 that I mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, I think the, the questionnaires can be can be useful. And mm -hmm. particularly if these patients are, are being seen in a subspecialty clinic, like an interstitial lung disease clinic, uh, then the questionnaires are, are very frequently used. Once 
we go through the entire history, then what would be your approach to actually go forward and diagnose HP? Yeah, so as per the um, latest 2020 ATS guidelines, um, it's, I think, first important to understand there are two different phenotypes of HP. So you can have non-fibrotic HP, which is typically seen in younger patients. Um, that's more of an acute onset. Uh, antigen exposure is often um, more likely to be identifiable. Um, you might not see lung volume changes on PFT. Uh, and if you were to uh, bronchoscope those patients, uh, that's when you're more likely going to see a uh, lymphocyte predominance in their bronchoalveolar lavage. That's in contrast to patients with fibrotic HP, um, which are uh, often more older patients. Um, they will have um, more physiologic impairments in terms of reduced vital capacity and a reduced total lung capacity, as well as impairments in their diffusion capacity for carbon monoxide. And if those patients are, are bronchoscope, they're less likely to show the uh, lymphocytic predominance on their uh, BAL. Um, the CT scans of those patients um, will show an, an ILD pattern. Um, and typically the presentation in those cases is more uh, insidious or chronic. So there are uh, three items that are part of the diagnostic criteria. Um, number one is to identify exposure to uh, a known offending agent. Um, so usually in fibrotic HP, 60% uh, of the time though, uh, an antigen is, is not able to be identified. So despite all of our best efforts and detective work and questionnaires, um, it can be very challenging to uh, identify the antigen. Um, so this is done in a few ways. Um, the best is you know, our clinical history and using some of those questionnaires. Uh, and we can also do blood tests for specific IgG against antigens. Um, and rarely um, specific inhalational challenges can also be used. The second part of the uh, diagnostic criteria is looking for uh, imaging findings on high resolution CT scans. Um, so some of the abnormalities um, indicative of uh, HP with parenchymal infiltration would include things like ground glass changes and then a mosaic pattern. Um, largely, this is going to be more frequently seen with a uh, upper lung zone predominance. Um, and there might be other signs of small airways disease as well, such as central lobular nodules, which are often ground glass um, or air trapping, which can present with that mosaic pattern that I mentioned. The fibrotic um, HP pattern is a little bit different in that it uh, is more likely to consist of coarse reticulations. Sometimes can be, uh, you can see signs of honeycombing, can be difficult to distinguish from IPF. Um, sometimes it can actually present as kind of a reverse IPF where you might see you know, more of those typical IPF changes, but in a upper lung zone predominance rather than the lower lung zone predominance uh, that you can uh, see with IPF. The third part is um, the biopsy findings um, or the uh, histopathologic changes. So, and um, some of the things we look for on biopsy would be airway centered inflammation. Again, given that this is an inhalational agent um, that is ex the, uh, the exposure, um, we look for lymphocyte, uh, lymphocytic infiltration. And if we do the um, BAL um, through bronchoscopy, we would see uh, a lymphocytosis in the cases of um, non-fibrotic HP. 
Um, so the cutoffs that we typically look for for that are greater than 30% in non-smokers um, and in ex-smokers or greater than 20% in current smokers. Um, a normal BAL with a typical uh, high resolution CT scan and a positive exposure um, would put you in the moderate confidence category for HP. So for non-fibrotic HP, um, we'd recommend a BAL uh, plus or minus transbronchial forceps biopsies. And for fibrotic HP, uh, we typically recommend a BAL plus or minus transbronchial lung cryobiopsies. So if there's diagnostic uncertainty still remaining after these three steps, that's when you typically will go to your multidisciplinary discussion between a respirologist, radiologist, and pathologist. Um, and if needed, then a surgical lung biopsy would be considered. Can I ask you, what is a cryobiopsy? Yeah, so cryobiopsies are um, a different type of biopsy that's done uh, bronchoscopically. Okay. Um, it's a little bit different than the typical transbronchial biopsies that we're doing in the sense that you're, you're basically able to get a larger chunk of tissue. So you're able to see a little bit more of the um, underlying lung architecture and get a little bit more pathologic uh, information from, from those I biopsies. See. Okay. So let me try to summarize here. Um, you discussed uh, the two different uh, types of HP, so non-fibrotic and fibrotic. And for our diagnostic criteria, broadly, we need to, I guess, first at least try to identify an exposure to a known offending agent. And then we need to have some typical imaging findings. And again, it can be different if it's non-fibrotic versus fibrotic, and perhaps most important biopsy findings. Um, and surprising to me, because I thought a lung biopsy would always need to be done. So it sounds like a lung biopsy is not always needed, but can be considered if uh, three very smart subspecialists, as in respirology, you said pathology and radiology, are all kind of shaking their heads and don't have an official diagnosis, then that might be the time where we would go with lung biopsy. <laughs> You mentioned that the new guidelines uh, discuss in a very sort of clean matter, uh, the fibrotic type and then the non-fibrotic type. Just out of curiosity, did the old guidelines also dissect it out into those two types or what was what was the big change in these guidelines? Yeah, the, they definitely split it up into fibrotic and non-fibrotic. The, the big change was kind of this new table, which is in there, um, which really, I think people need to, to look at to, mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think I would do it justice just by describing it, but it's the way in which you can use either the um, BAL lymphocytosis versus transbronchial biopsies, and it can kind of tip you from being either low confidence to moderate confidence to high confidence. And it's, it's really nicely laid out in kind of a, an algorithm um, that shows you how each of those um, diagnostic steps and whether you have an antigen and whether you have typical versus uh, incompatible CT features um, move you kind of along the spectrum of having diagnostic okay, yeah. confidence. Right, we can definitely provide a link to that um, on our website. I suppose from an IM perspective, I think I would probably go as far in the workup as to get a very comprehensive history, as we mentioned, um, and order that CT scan with the suggestive findings. But then at that point, I would be referring on to respirology for the BAL portion or the histopathology portion. Would you, would you agree with that? Is that when you tend to get the patients? Yeah, I think that's a, a very reasonable way as, a, as an internist to, to approach the patients and have uh, the referrals. And that's, that's often the, the stage in which we're getting involved. I see. Okay.
So then tying it back to our original case, then going back to Mr. Santos's initial workup of his PFT testing, let's say revealed a normal FEV to FEC ratio, a normal TLC and RV, but a decreased DLCO of 55%. He went on to have a high resolution CT, which ended up showing upper lobe centrilobular ground glass nodules. Um, and he continues to have exertional dyspnea and a non-productive cough. So how would you recommend at this point of time we should proceed with this information so wait let me try to test my knowledge here then so we said that this patient does have decreased lung function uh and so i remember dan saying if they have decreased lung functioning that's more in keeping with fibrotic hp i forget what this patient's age was i'm just trying to guess here oh he was 40 so not not too old so that's me guessing that it's fibrotic hp but you can tell me if i'm right or wrong Close guess, and I, I think that's probably <laughs> probably my fault, and that I, I didn't clarify some of the the physiologic uh, impairments that we see. So, what what I probably should have said a little bit more clear is is while the um, lung volumes will typically be normal in uh, acute IHP, what we can see is a reduction in diffusion capacity. With, like oh, we're seeing. Oh, I see. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. So I thought yeah. of it in the opposite way. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so in his case, um, I would recommend doing a bronchoscopy and a and a BAL uh, for two reasons. Uh, one, to rule out underlying infection, um, which you could see with you know some of these symptoms, and uh, definitely a, a lower respiratory tract infection can cause a uh, isolated reduction in diffusion capacity like this. So that would be one reason to do it, and the other would be to look for that BAL uh, lymphocytosis. So if you see that on your bronchoscopy, uh, then that would convey a high degree of confidence for non-fibrotic HP uh, and transbronchial uh, biopsies would not be required. Um, however, if the BAL was indeterminate, uh, then he would need those, those transbronchial biopsies for a, a definite diagnosis. Part of the challenge is you know, when we're doing the procedure, often we're doing those things at the same time. Um, so we're not going to typically um, put a patient through two bronchoscopies. So it, it comes down to a little bit of, you know, uh, how suspicious are you? How likely do you think that this is acute HP? And, and sometimes you have to give your, your best guess as to you know, whether or not this is someone who you're going to want to do both a, a BAL as well as transbronchial biopsies on, um, thinking kind of two steps ahead um, as to what the results of those tests might be. So with a confirmed diagnosis, um, we typically recommend number one for sure would be antigen avoidance. Um, so in this case, the, the pigeons, people never want to get rid of their birds, but we always recommend it. Um, so that's the, uh, the primary treatment option for sure. Um, however, when people have physiologic impairments like we're seeing here, uh, then um, often a, a steroid course with uh, prednisone would be recommended. And can you expand a bit more on the management uh, in terms of like what uh, what's the typical starting dose of steroids that we would use? Is it always steroids? If, if they fail, is, is there anything else that we would go to? And what's the uh, prognosis like? I would assume or suspect that it might be different from uh, non-fibrotic versus fibrotic. 
Yeah, absolutely. So generally, if patients have normal lung function, then um, we just need to observe uh, post uh, antigen removal. So those would be patients who maybe have these findings picked up incidentally for a CT scan that was done for another reason. Uh, so in those cases, if we're able to remove the antigen, whatever that might be, um, then often the radiologic changes will, uh, will resolve. Um, so we would typically follow those patients, repeat their lung function, repeat their imaging, and, and make sure that things normalize. Um, in terms of the treatment, you're absolutely right that it differs um, in terms of non-fibrotic HP versus fibrotic HP. So for non-fibrotic HP first, um, typically the starting dose of prednisone that we would recommend would be 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per day, uh, usually for two weeks, and then tapered uh, gradually over two to four weeks. Um, and then we'd be following those patients looking for improvements in their symptoms of cough, dyspnea, um, some of the constitutional symptoms that they might be experiencing. We repeat their lung function tests and look to see um, ideally normalization of their uh, physiologic impairments. Um, in the case of fibrotic HP, um, similarly, we're starting with a dose of prednisone, usually 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, usually for a bit of a longer course uh, for four to eight weeks, uh, and then a very gradual taper, usually um, over a few months, down to 10 milligrams. Um, Generally, the prednisone is going to be more beneficial in those with inflammatory features, so acute HP, um, those with a lot of ground glass or central ovular uh, ground glass nodules, um, or if there's evidence of BAL lymphocytosis, which often goes along with that more acute inflammatory phase. Um, so if there's no improvements with prednisone, then that's when we would, uh, that's one of the circumstances in which we would consider adding a second immunosuppressive agent. Um, some of the ones we would consider would be either um, MMF or azathioprine, uh, and there is good observational data at least uh, that these agents um, do lead to improvements in their uh, patient's physiologies um, and do have fewer uh, adverse effects compared to long-term prednisone, which as we all know, um, has a lot of uh, nasty side effects long-term. In terms of other agents, um, so now we're getting to third-line treatments, uh, rituximab can be considered uh, for refractory cases of HP, although it's, it's quite rare to, to require that. Um, the good news is that the, the majority of patients with uh, acute HP or subacute HP experience near total recovery of lung function, um, which in some cases can take uh, quite a while, uh, even several years, um, after the uh, inciting exposure ceases. Um, in terms of the prognosis, it does vary as well, depending on what the initial antigen was. So in cases of uh, bird fancier's lung, for example, uh, it does appear to have a worse prognosis than farmer's lung. And then in terms of the final step, um, as with many chronic lung diseases, uh, lung transplant is, is definitely an option for those with advanced chronic HP um, who are uh, resistant to these therapies or have significant ongoing um, symptoms or physiologic impairment. Hmm. Okay, so if lung function is good, we try removing the inciting factor and follow up with the patient. But otherwise, it sounds like in general, if there is an impairment in lung function, we're going to try for what sounds like a longer course of steroids. And then if no success uh, in general, potentially that would be sort of second line, third line, we'd be starting an immunosuppressive, th an immunosuppressive agent um, with lung transplant being the last resort. Um, 
Is that is that a good sort of general summary? Yeah, I think that's uh, very well put. Very well put. Well, this was a a very great deep dive onto uh, a topic that, uh, to be honest with you, I did not know very much about uh, before this conversation. So to conclude, can you take it away with some five uh, most important points about hypersensitivity pneumonitis? Absolutely. So HP is caused by being allergic to certain allergens that you breathe in, which is going to cause inflammation, eventually lead to scarring and pulmonary fibrosis, uh, if not recognized and treated early. Uh, Therefore, eliciting a detailed history is uh, really essential to this diagnosis. Uh, There are two phenotypes of HP, fibrotic versus non-fibrotic, and making this distinction is important uh, as it's going to help guide your further workup uh, as well as your management course. For patients with newly identified interstitial lung disease, uh, whose differential includes fibrotic and non-fibrotic HP, uh, the guideline committee from um, most recent ATS uh, guidelines would recommend a BAL with uh, lymphocyte cellular analysis. Um, In terms of treatment, Prednisone can be beneficial, um, particularly in those with inflammatory features, uh, if that's picked up either radiographically uh, or on BAL with lymphocytosis. Um, And uh, whereas individuals with uh, fibrosis uh, are more likely to need uh, other immunosuppressive agents like MMF or azathioprine. The majority of patients with acute or subacute HP um, do experience near total recovery of lung function. Um, However, that may take in some cases uh, several years after the uh, inciting exposure ceases. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Dan. I feel like I now know maybe 50% of a topic that I previously knew like 0.5% about. So I, I feel like I learned a lot. I don't know. Absolutely. About you, Same here for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Dan. Yeah, absolutely this was really helpful. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Internet Work. This episode was written by Dr. Jennifer DeCruz and Dr. Dan Gillette and reviewed by Dr. Corey Yamashita, Respirology. This episode was recorded and produced by Zara Morali. The Internet Work was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karanopoulos. Music production by Laxman's Vantha Mohan. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Check out our hypersensitivity pneumonitis infographic on our website, theinternetwork.com. This is The Internet Work, and we hope to see you again soon.